If you're looking for a protein bar that is made to optimize your performance as a martial artist and help you on your dreams of becoming an Olympic judo player, then check out Black Belt Nutrition. Their protein bars are on Amazon. They have MCT oil. They're packed with high-quality glycogen replenishing carbs so you can train longer for harder. And they have no fake shit guaranteed. Black Belt Nutrition. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today we have Ricardo Blas Jr., uh, judo Olympian, um, Guam martial art legend. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Blas, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no worries. Let's kill the Mr. part, man. Just call me Rick. All right, Rick. Rick, what's going on? <laughs> Off a day, buenas. Um, so, Rick, for our people who are not from Guam, can you tell us about where you're from? and your upbringing and kind of how you started training judo. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm from Guam, born and raised in Guam until uh, I was about 12, 13 years old. And then I moved to Japan for high school. Then I'd always come back during all the breaks and whatnot. But uh, I spent basically most of my life in Japan, my competitive life. And then uh, in 2015, I retired off of an injury and I've been coaching ever since. So, so yeah. So did you move to Japan when you were young for judo? Yeah, so I, I did move there for judo. Um, initially, I wasn't going to go. I was going to try to grow up here and go to Japan, you know. Um, every so often, every break I could get. But I got into a lot of trouble as a kid, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, Rafa can tell you that the, uh, the culture on the island, the fight culture on the island is pretty real especially in, when I was growing up. So I got into a lot of trouble getting into like fist fights and street fights and stuff like that. And so Were my you dad, the instigator you know, or... I was never the instigator. I'm never the instigator, but you know, like I said, Rafa can tell you if, if you're a guy that sticks out, then someone's going to be out there to challenge you, man. So it was kind of rough and it is what it is. Right. But, but, uh, you know, it's also what made me who I am today too. It, uh, I guess the breaking point was, for my dad really was when I, uh, when I got kicked out of school. It's kind of hard to get expelled from JFK, man. <laughs> you know? So and like I said, you kind of got to be from here to understand how hard it is to get kicked out of that kind of school, you know, so it's pretty bad. I see. So you mentioned the fighting culture on Guam. Could you give us a timeline of like when you started judo and how that interwines with the emergence of MMA on Guam? Yeah, so so my so I started judo. My story goes to before I was even born, and um, my dad is a 1988 judo Olympian from Guam as well. And so uh, you know he's he spent a lot of his life in Japan as well. Um, and I started doing judo. I mean, I was on the mat since before I could walk, and I've been doing judo officially since I was about four years old, right? So I'm 35 going on 36. So it's about 32 years of doing nothing but judo. And, uh, you know, when I was doing judo as a young kid, you get, you had people like um, Big John Calvo and these guys coming up, you know, fighting uh, 
Dan Severin, you know, and then the first MMA bouts here in Guam, you know, and then while all of these guys were coming up, I was just, just getting into the world circuit at a really young age too. I started fighting in the international scene when I was about 13, 14 years old. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty rare, but I was, I was kind of a big guy at 13, 14, you know, 5'10", 5'11", about 300 pounds. So, you know, I was still rocking the world scene then, but, <clears throat> but yeah, um, the MMA scene on Guam, it's, it's not something I really got connected with until I came home uh, during my university years. And even in then, I wasn't really connected in any official way. I was just uh, what they call the ex-cop for the TXC, so do security jobs, you know, um, just so I could be able to hang out with the guys there and, and kind of watch the show and whatnot. And it was cool. It was fun. But truthfully, I've never really been involved with the MMA world. Um, just because judo is taking up 1000% of my time. And so I never had time to really do much of anything else except for judo. You mentioned that you started when you were, even before you were born. I, when I was doing research, I saw an article that said you started when you were 15. And I was like, there's no way. No, no, I started when I was four years old. Yeah, started doing judo when I was four. Maybe competing on the world tour was when I was about 15, yeah, 15, 16. So did yeah, you, sure. so, so when you were sent to Japan uh, for high school, so you said that was because you're getting in trouble and your family wanted to send you somewhere else. Were you thinking of judo? Okay, this yes. is an opportunity to start, you know, having higher access to judo in Japan. Yeah, my mindset is at that age was, um, it was a little different, you know. I, uh, so the reason why I got sent to Japan and why it was an option was the summer before that I was training at a Tokai University in Hawaii. And, um, and then I had gotten a scholarship from a recruiter, Kitara Sensei, out of Tokai University. So they, um, they saw how I performed during the training camp and I performed during the tournament and, and they uh, offered me a scholarship. And so when things didn't work out here, that was what I fell back on. It was kind of rough, you know, Tokai Daini High School down in Komomoto in Kyushu, Japan. It's uh, these guys were the inter high champions, the number ones in all of Japan. So when I got there, I was no longer a big fish in a small pond, man. I was I was a little guy. So what was that transition so like? Well, I got thrown into a, to Komomoto, which nobody speaks any English. Nobody in my school spoke any English, so... It was a pretty lonely three months of me just trying to learn the language and, and catch up and everything. So, you know, when you're in a foreign country, you don't speak the language and then everyone's kicking your ass every day. It gets, uh, it gets tough. Oh, excuse the language, by the way. My bad. Oh, no, you can, you can say whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> All right. yeah, no, but uh, I, I, hear, I hear, especially in Japan, obviously you would know way more than me. Um, but I hear Japanese kids can be tough in terms of bullying, yeah, messing with people. You know, a lot of people don't, yeah, a lot of people don't talk about it. But, yeah, there's a senpai kohai system in place, you know, the seniors and the juniors. And so in high school, there's three years of high school. Yeah, the Ichinensei, these guys basically, uh, we clean the mats, we clean the toilets. We, we, you know, we make sure that the senpai's knees are, are taken care of. And, you know, it's all part of the process of being part of this club, you know. 
you got to do your part, earn your way. And then when you come a second year, you specifically cater to the third years, but you no longer have to clean as much. But the third years basically own you, right? And then you guys have to manage the first years. So the third years don't have to do it. Now, when you become a third year, you become like king, basically, you know? Everyone does everything for you. You guys are on the competition team. It's it's pretty cool. You know, kind of like in the States, I guess you, you would uh, compare it to like varsity versus, you know, junior varsity and then the starters versus, you know, the guys on the bench and stuff like that. So, but in Japan, it's, it's real old school, real military style too. So it can get pretty rough. So sure. this was a judo school. It wasn't just a school where they had judo. It was a judo school. No, no. So this was a school um, oh, okay, okay. where the judo program was extremely strong, but they had other programs like, you know, baseball, kendo, uh, soccer. I mean, they had all school interscholastic sports, but judo was their, the coach, Haraguchi Sensei, was an Olympic silver medalist. And he, his methods, you know, were, were amazing. They brought him to two uh, inter-high championships, which is, it's really, really hard to win in inter-high championships. Your players have to be like the baddest players in, in the country, you know? So it's pretty sick. Um, this school, Tokai University, the universe, university itself is is a very dominant university. It's always top three. And so I think just a few days ago, they had just won the university championships, beating out Kokshikan, and that must have been their 10, year, 10 years in a row. Before that, they went another 10 years after being beaten. So they're the most dominant force in, in Japanese judo at the moment. And so the high school I went to is just one of the high schools that they, uh, they have all over Japan. So Tokai is a private school that's um, it's very prominent in judo. And so this high school I went to specifically was the strongest high school at the time. Dang. For the judo so, club. So then skill-wise, um, you know, it's, it's kind of common for our athletes on Guam to dominate on Guam. Kind of like you were saying, have big fish in a little pond. But when they make it out of the States, it's hard for a lot of them to compete with the best in the States. Yeah. So then when you made it out to Japan and you were competing with the best in the world, I'm assuming, because Japan is still with the top judo yeah. nation. Yeah, what was sure that you mentioned again earlier about, you know, that transition, but how difficult was it for you to, was there a period where you had to learn how to keep up with them or was it a natural transition? Um, so I had done training camps in Japan, um, you know, multiple years before heading out there. And then I've, um, you know, I went over there for training for two weeks before I made the commitment to actually go uh, the year before. And that was during winter. And at the time, I thought I could keep up. And then when I got there, I realized seasonal training is a thing. You know, you do certain trainings during certain times of the year. And when I got there summertime, man, I was dying for sure. It took me it took me six months to catch up for sure. I was dying every day because we had crazy hours living in the dormitory so the kids that live in the dorms which is about 80 percent of the team our lives are are, are set we're up every morning at, at 5 a.m we uh we go everyone comes out military style we stretch warm up 
we kind of have our 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 bow into the head you know the headmaster of the dorm and then um from there we we either rush to school for training or we eat our breakfast and then go to school and hit class so if we have morning training or we'll, We'll rush to school, we'll train, then we'll eat our breakfast in the cafeteria before going to school. Then we go to school, we clean up our area, we do classes, we have lunch. Sometimes we have lunch training, then we'll have a, a quick bento, you know, stuff like that. And then after school, you know, uh, each class is committed to clean a, a different part of the school, you know, every every other week. So once we're done doing that, we run off to the dojo, we clean the dojo up for practice. We have a sometimes a four hour practice, three to four hour practice. Then we have dinner at the dorms. Then we have about an hour and a half to do our studying and then it lights out at 11.30 and then uh, we do it all over again. Okay. Yeah. So you, you talked about how when you were in, initially sent there, you were a little hesitant you wanted to stay on Guam and you said it was tough being in a place where they don't speak your language and you're doing that, you're, t you're doing that lifestyle you just described. When yeah. did you see the bigger picture? Like, okay, maybe this will set me for like a better life or this will prepare me for a life of competition. Truthfully, the first six months I was there, I was, I was sad. I was probably depressed. I was homesick. I was getting beat up. I was getting injured. You know, I was bruised up every day. It was hard to roll out of bed. You know, it's hard to be motivated when, these guys are your age, a little bit older than you, but they're just, they just seem unbeatable, you know? And it wasn't until about towards the end of the six months, I started making a lot of progress. I started throwing these guys back. Then I realized, you know, where I started versus where I was at six months, if I just push a little harder, I know I can start beating these guys consistently. And then over, over six months to eight months, I started winning more, started throwing more, and then I got in the competition team then eventually became the anchor. So yeah, I got really good. And if a lot of people understand when you're put in that environment and, and all you have are negative thoughts, all you're gonna get is negative results. So the whole point for me was I had to learn that these small wins add up to really big ones, you know, over time. So in the end, I guess resilience is what kept me in the game, you know, cause I just didn't want to be told that I wasn't good enough for this place. Was so, quitting you know, ever an option? Huh? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, <clears throat> I was just saying, when I was growing up, I got picked on a lot. You know, bullied, picked on, being the, being the fat kid in class and stuff like that, right? So, you know, it was an easy target, especially here in Guam, man. Kids can be brutal, big time, dude. You know, and also I was just this light-skinned Chamali kid too, man. So I was getting picked on. Rocco knows what I'm talking about, man, I'm sure. Yeah, I went to St. John's, <laughs> so, I was protected. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Might have been a different experience if you went to public school. If I went to Jose Rios, it might have been different. Yeah, man, that's where I went, dude. It would have definitely been different. Oh, you went to Jose Rios? He's Mr. Yeah. Jose Rios. Yeah. Oh no way. Sorry. Yeah, let's go Voyagers. Okay. Yeah, Voyagers all the way, bro. <laughs> so you so know, I was asking. Uh-huh. Um, when you were going through this tough time, was quitting ever an option? No. <clears throat> quitting was never an option. If I quit, where would I go? Come back home? Can't quit with my dad, dude. I had nowhere to go, so the only place to stay was there. When you have no other option but forward, bro, all you got to do is just keep going. I see.
you mentioned yeah. that your dad was also a Olympic level uh, judoka. Was it yeah, ever he, a thing um, where like you felt pressured to also excel in judo because he was he was good and you wanted to impress him? Yeah, that really is, that's a story on its own as well. You know, um, my brother and I grew up doing judo our whole lives, but when we first started, we hated it. We 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 used to cry every single day going to judo. We didn't want to go. You know, we're kids. We just want to hang out and have fun and watch TV or play outside. We didn't didn't want to go to this uh, disciplined area where our dad is running the class and yelling at us the whole time. You know, making us sweat, making us do hard work, making us get beat up by our first cousins. You know, stuff like that. So for us, for me, it wasn't it wasn't fun until until I started winning. You know, I started beating people. I started throwing people. Then I realized, oh, cool. Like, I guess I'm pretty good at this, you know? And then when that happened, I started being more, my, you know, my brother and I started being more open to going out to Japan and testing ourselves against the kids out there, you know? And, and we would do pretty well. <clears throat> but obviously, everything is different once you pass the, the elementary, middle school level. Everything just gets crazy. So then... After doing the world circuit um, and repping Guam in the Olympics, do you think there's something about Guam judo that's unique to judo in other parts of the world? <clears throat> yeah, most definitely for sure. You, you see our performance in Oceania, we do well. And it's only because of our direct, um, our, our proximity to Japan and our connections to the Japanese judo system. So we have access to many universities that we can train at, many high schools and, and middle schools. We have access to the Kodokan, which is the foundation of judo. Um, yeah, just, just my dad's connections and then my connections over the years that we spent over there has now created a really good developmental program for Guam Judo at the moment. The only issue I guess we do have is that the sport is not so popular in Guam because because there's no competition. The reason why there's no competition is because at the moment, myself and a handful of people are the only ones running the program. But if we had other dojos, we could create a competitive process and judo could get more popular. But, you know, that was at the Marion is open not too long ago. And I sat there and I watched this huge gymnasium packed with just Brazilian jiu-jitsu players. And I just thought, wow, these guys are doing something right, you know? And it was amazing to see. And it's something that I definitely want to get to. I want to, I want to bridge the gap, too, between, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Jiu-Jitsu here in Guam. At the moment, I have <clears throat> Josh Andrew, who's living in Tokyo at the moment, finishing up his uh, university uh, degree. And he fought at the Tokyo Olympic Games, just his recent games. So he's my student. Once he moves back, eventually he'll open a dojo. And then um, I have a few other black belts up and coming that I can hopefully get to run a dojo themselves. So I'm hoping in the next five years, we're going to have a competitive process going on here. So then how do you bridge the, the gap between the jiu-jitsu and judo and Guam? And I also feel like it's not just Guam, but I feel like there's a growing thing where jiu-jitsu players want to learn more stand-up and maybe even vice versa with judo players in, in the ground game. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's always been kind of a stigma between judo players, jiu-jitsu players. I've never understood it. But it probably leads all the way back to when Helio Gracie fought Masahiko Kimura, you know? So the judo world 
and the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world since then has kind of been, there's kind of been a tension between, you know, the Gracie family creating that tension between, you know, Kano Sensei and the Judo movement around the world. But to me now, I mean, it's just like anything else, bro. We're, we are who we are now where we live in this world where we should coexist, you know, especially if we're coming from the same country, we should be helping each other grow. If, if we have the ability to teach each other, then we should work together, right? If I can help anyone who's willing to come and learn some judo, I'm down to help. Was there ever a, I heard there's a period of time where there was actually beef between judo and jiu-jitsu in Guam. Is that true? Not that I know of, uh, personally. Uh, um, it, might, it might be with my, with my dad, maybe, possibly. My dad's a purist, right? So he's just nothing but judo, old school. Right. So, uh, but with me, I, I think a lot of, a lot of that falls onto me because we have the same name. I've been doing, you know, my entire life. Right. So I think people automatically just stick me in that, that same like corner with him thinking that I have the same ideals. It's, it's very different. We're two very different people with two very different ideals, two very different experiences, you know? So for me, my outlook on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is I respect everyone that's doing it out here and everyone that's been growing the community because they're doing a much better job than I am doing it with my judo program so far. So I have nothing but respect for these guys. Well, like I was saying earlier, I think, I think judo's um, of the grappling arts. I think it's probably one of the, one, one of the hardest ones, if not the hardest one. Um, yeah. It's, so like, uh, I guess a little bit of statistic for you, I might be wrong with some of the numbers, but judo is the most competitive, second most competitive sport in the world after soccer. Oh, really? And then it's also, yeah, it's the second most competitive sport in the Olympic games after athletics. So something out of like out of the 207 Olympic countries, 204 countries compete in judo. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Kano Sensei definitely did something right when he sent all of his peoples out to the world, you know, and, and, and started teaching judo. They connected with governments, you know, the United Nations and whatnot, right? So, like, just in France alone, there's over 800,000 registered judo players just in France. Yeah. So France is a powerhouse judo nation. You know, that's where Teddy Reiner comes from. Teddy Reiner is a 10-time world champion, 10 times in a row, right? He's won over 300-some matches undefeated. So he's the winningest judo player that's ever lived. It's pretty amazing. And he's French. That's a lot of throws, huh? Yeah, it's a lot of epons, man. It's pretty sick. I hear the French have a unique style of judo. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the French style, is, it's, it's a little bit, little bit of a mix of Japanese judo with European-style judo, you know? So a lot of technique backed up with power. It's 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 interesting. Each player is very different. Just just the ability to just because they have so many players and so many ways to reflect off of each other and then develop and evolve their 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 technique and and their competitiveness. It's it's amazing that many eight hundred thousand registered players. Could you imagine? You know the concept of steel sharpened steel. Each one of those guys is the blade man. So when you have the ability to sharpen your steel against so many other different types it's it's pretty sick each blade's going to be pretty sick you know does guam ever get influence from korean judo yeah so at the moment uh so i'm very close to the korean judo players and the korean judo federation too actually at the moment um we have uh she just retired her name is uh moki cho cho moki 
my uh, negative 63 kilo uh, national team member from Korea. So she's moved to Guam to uh, learn English. She's a multiple Grand Slam Grand Prix winner. She's 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 a top dog, man. She also so she's actually uh, she's from Japan though. She's she's born and raised in Japan, just like another player, An Changrim. They're both born and raised in Japan. Became top in the world basically, but she didn't speak a word of Korean until about six years ago when she got recruited. <laughs> yeah, and so but no. She, uh, Korean judo, I mean, I get all sorts of Korean judo players coming out to Guam for vacation and, you know, they're all national team members and they always come by and bring a judo gi and then stop into the class and work out with the kids. So, yeah, definitely there's a lot of, you know, Guam's connection to Korea judo is very strong. I also send my, my players out to Korea often for camps, Yongin University and, and the National Training Center and stuff. Speaking of Korea... I used to train Taekwondo in Mighty at the James G Taekwondo. Oh, I used to do judo there. Interesting. Have you ever seen, I used to come back and then pop into the dojo every once in a while and then split all the time. You ever see me in, in the dojo? No, I only did like the Saturday nighttime training there because I would train I somewhere see. else. Yeah. Okay, interesting. That's with Mike Cole, right? Yep. That's right. So, so can we, I'd like to talk about the, the Olympics, that's where a lot of, uh, if it's okay to say, I think a lot of your legacy has been cemented. You know, the first and only Chamorro Guamanian uh, person from that region to even advance uh, yeah. past the first yeah. round Olympics. So was it ever your dream growing up to represent Guam with the Olympic stage or did it just end yeah. up like that? It was, it's always been the goal. 1,000%, everything I was doing my entire life was to lead up to competing at the Olympic Games. It's, it's, it's the pinnacle of, 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 I guess, all sports, you know, the, the highest level of competition. And people say, oh, yeah, well, the World Championship is tougher. It, it's not about being tougher. It's about the rarity of the situation. Mm -hmm. It only happens every four years. The qualification process is extremely rough. Um, like... I like to I like to teach the kids, right? And it's it's about numbers. It's a numbers game, right? So there's seven billion people in the world, right? And out of seven billion people, there are only ten thousand Olympians every four years. So it makes you one of the most rare people in the entire world, right? Smaller than you know the one percent. So, and it's not just that. I, I try to have them grasp that like most kids in Guam definitely would not grasp you know seven billion ten thousand four years well if you think about a billion you ask a kid how much how long would it take for, for you to count to a million right and everyone guesses but no one gets anywhere near how long it really takes it takes 30 37 hours I think or 31 hours something like that Shit. to count to a million if you never stop and then I ask them how how much how long they think it'll take to count to a billion and they say something like, oh, one week, two weeks, three weeks. And I'm like, no, man, it, it takes 30, 37 years to count to a billion. Or 31 years, one of those two. I keep mixing them up. It's either 37 or 31. But the fact is, if you never stop counting to a billion, it would take you that long to get there. There's 7 billion people in the world. And 10,000 of those every four years become Olympians. So that's... That's the beauty of, of the Olympic Games. It's, it's the rarity of the, co the competitor that makes it there. So what it's something the you artists... have to dedicate and strive for, you know? 
what was the hardest you think uh, the biggest challenge on the road to the Olympics for you? To be honest, it's staying motivated. You know, you hit all of these competitions out there, you're not going to win every one of them. You know, at that level, everyone's really, really strong uh, competing at the same kind of, competing with the same kind of passion and drive to, to, to qualify. So you really, when you're beating these guys, you're, you're crushing their dreams too, you know, and vice versa. So staying motivated and, 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 and staying on top of it, staying injury free, and then trying to convince yourself that what you're doing is worth it. You know, that's probably the biggest and hardest thing to deal with while you're trying to aim for the Olympic games for sure. Who was the, who was the person behind your, your mindset, hoping you, through it was it just was it just you or did you have someone like a mentor or hire so a lot of it was me you know um I always had people pushing me but but when you're the one really doing it there's no one but you that can really get you there you know a lot of people can talk to you and tell you you're doing fine and tell you that you know, the, I've been through the struggle. There's a lot of mentors out there, a lot of guys that have been there before me that were all, you know, always there in my ear trying to help me out. But truthfully, it's 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 thousand percent up to you. Even I coach now, I bring that to the table and I let them know, like, I'm there to guide you. I'm there to teach you. I'm there to open the door for you. But you have to be the one to step through it. And that's the same thing with me when I was competing is I had to be personally responsible for my mindset because if I wasn't, then I wouldn't make it for sure. When you finally qualified, was there, because we were kind of talking earlier about the pressure, you know, of being Rick Bloss Jr., being raised in that uh, family that expected judo excellence from a young age. Was there kind of a pressure lift when you finally made it? Or was there even more pressure? Um, <clears throat> well, there's more. I mean, of course, there's going to be more pressure, right? Because, and it's, I think it's more pressure from myself, too. But, you know, the dream is always to go and win right? Win the gold medal. Right? And then when you don't, I still had two fights and it was still pretty, pretty good. But when you don't perform to, and you don't live up to the dream that you've had your entire life working up to it, you know, all that happens is you, you sit there and you kind of feel some major defeat, you know? And then, and then you think about it and you think, man, I made it here. I can do it again. And then the pressure gets, you know, it gets bigger, it gets stronger. So what, what was it like going from, because a lot of people, I'm assuming, they make one Olympic Games and they're done. They make one. But you did it twice <laughs> yeah. back to back. What was that like? Uh, it was tough. I mean, I wouldn't say tough. It, it was, it was, uh, it was just my life is judo. I had no idea what I would do outside of it. Actually, after the 2008 Olympic Games, I, I took a year off to, and I went to the, I went to live in Portland, Oregon. And I tried to do this whole thing where, where I didn't tell anyone what I did, didn't do any judo, you know, try to live kind of a normal life. And all it takes is that one classmate to Google your name, man. And it was game over. <laughs> I was out there in Portland. I did some uh, judo with PDX judo, you know, uh, Andy Hung and his brother, Louis Hung, those guys, good people. You know, they used to train down in San Jose with like Rhonda and, and Travis and those guys. So, you know, I made, uh, you know, some good family out there in Portland with Portland Judo and had a good time in Portland. But then I guess one day, <clears throat> one day my dad 
asked me if I wanted to fight at the U.S. Open in San Jose, which was in 2009. And I said, you know what, why not? But I hadn't done a day of judo since. And I, so my cousin Mark came out to visit me from Virginia. And because I was only doing it just to try, I wasn't taking it serious. So the night before I got, I got pretty, pretty, pretty drunk with my cousin. Oh yeah. <laughs> You're saying fuck up. this. <laughs> so I woke up the next morning, hung over as hell, went to the competition way in, waited, <laughs> saw my buddy Dan McCormick, and he was like, bro, are you fucking are you are you still drunk? Dude, I'm like, I think I might be, bro, but we'll see. So obviously this is a very disrespectful thing. I would never tell anyone to do this, right? My mindset at that time was I don't think I want to do judo anymore. I'm just gonna try this thing out, right? But it's super disrespectful to your opponents. Please don't ever do this if you decide to, to do judo and, and compete, right? But so I go in. I don't even warm up. My cousin Mark's like, dude, you're going to be okay. I'm like, just wake me up before my match starts. And I just crash out on the rat. <laughs> and so once they call my name for the first match, I wake up, rub the sleep out of my eyes, drink some water, get on the mat. I end the first match in like 15 seconds. Throw the guy huge heap on, win, bow off the mat, go back and sleep on the on the uh, warm up mat again. So I did that, and then I fought the next match, lasted maybe 20, 30 seconds again, went back and I slept. The third match lasted like five, six seconds. The guy went for a double leg, and I just turned and just threw him straight over my head, you know. And so <clears throat> after that, the the finals weren't until about. 5 p.m. So I went back to the hotel. I ate. I slept for a few hours. Came back, <laughs> and then I fought for the gold medal round with France. Had to be France, and I lost by a small penalty point. So I took the silver medal at the U.S. Open, hungover. So just Not dying. Even trading. Do without trading. Yeah, it was bad. Is that the Guam style? Anyone else ever do this? But but yeah, it's one of those crazy things I did one time in my life. You think that's the Guam style? Nah, that's definitely not the Guam style. I don't want that to ever be the Guam style. Man. That was the least style the Guam style, dude. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the Guam style. That's just the meat style because I'm stupid. And that's why that's why I actually um I actually went down there was to actually coach him and and then also you know try to compete as well. And then I ended up taking the silver and then the next day he was competing so I coached him he didn't do too well but after that I went back to Portland I packed my bags and then I headed back back out to Japan and did you and did that kind of start the the training camp for the next Olympics yeah that started me um so after the U.S. Open win or you know taking the silver the U.S. Open I you know I, I realized how much I missed you know I missed the lifestyle I miss competing. I missed, uh, you know, training in Japan. I miss Japan in general. So I went straight back to Tokai University. And I started training for the uh, London Olympic Games and started basing out of Japan between Tokai and the Kodokan. And then, uh, and then I was doing competitions in between that. So, and then I would pop home for a little break here and there. And, and that was my life until 2012, basically. So that kind of started the, the revenge tour for 2012. Yeah, basically, it, 
in a sense, yeah, it um it it made me realize that I wasn't done yet, and made me realize that uh I still had the dream of wanting to win an Olympic medal. So decided. So what, what was the big um you think mindset difference? Uh, or big maturity difference between 2012 and 2008? 2008, I definitely wasn't ready for that competition. Did not have enough experience to fight the players that I was fighting. Um, just fighting Lasha Gugiani, right? The, the guy from Georgia the first time. He was, you know, number five in the world. He's an amazing fighter. So I know that I did well, but not winning was was looking back it was just my lack of experience i definitely could have won you know so i going into london i was a lot i was a lot calmer i, I knew exactly what i was going to do i took my time i think um a lot of the times when you compete if you look at games you forget that you know it's just like any other competition take your time with it don't make mistakes don't let your nerves get to you you know um get your grip and then wait for the opportunity basically and how did it feel to be the the flag bearer at the twenty twelve Olympics? Uh, so I was the opening oh, ceremony flag bearer at the Beijing Olympics, and then I was the closing ceremony flag bearer for the London Olympic Games. Okay. Which one do you think felt Beijing, better? Beijing Olympic Games for sure. The opening ceremony was was nuts. You got a hundred hundred thousand people in the stands, and you're just walking through this dark tunnel. And before that, you know, you're you're queuing up in this really big arena next to the stadium, and, and you're you're seeing all of these different countries and all other top athletes, and of course, all the judo guys. When we see each other, we all know each other anyway, so we're kind of all just like messing around with each other and shooting the shit until we had, finally have to walk out in the parade of nations. And and so when it was my time to come out everyone was talking about different stories about, oh man, the way you should hold the flag. And I asked my friend Tosh, I was like, hey Tosh, has anyone ever just held the flag with one arm? Cause I was weighing the, I was weighing the flag around. I was like, man, this thing's not so heavy. And then he said, yeah, his name was Alexander Karelin. He was a wrestler, legendary wrestler. And so I said, shit, I'm gonna do it the same way. So I just grabbed it with one arm and I just started waving it around, man. And it was cool, it was fun. But walking out from that dark tunnel, it's really quiet. Like you ever watch those movies, like uh, those football movies where they're queuing up and then they run out into the field and it gets really quiet, like in their in the helmets. It's the same kind of concept right before you step out into that stadium. And it's it's quiet and it's in and the air is still. And then right when you step out, it's just this explosion of like colors and noises and, and you feel, you feel the noise, man, like it hits you. It hits you like a physical, like, hey, it's nuts. You're kind of taking it back. And it took like Maria and Derek Mandel to say, hey, start walking. Because right when I stepped out, I was frozen for a good second. And I was like, geez, just taking it all in, you know? So thankful for those guys who are telling me to, you know, start, start, start walking and start going. <laughs> you might still be stuck there today. <laughs> yes, for sure, dude. It's pretty nuts. I'm assuming it's pretty surreal. All yeah, those years of hard work, all the, all the epons, all the, all the times you were thrown, times you thought you weren't going to make it, and then you're there. You have the flag in your hand, and you're looking at the world. Yeah, basically, it was. Um, you know, I, looking back, like 
between then and now I've had so many experiences. So it's, it's not that fresh anymore for me, you know, it's not as fresh as, as when I was doing interviews and talking about it, but you know, as the distant memory now, it was, it was, it's a fond memory, you know, it's one of those things that um, it wasn't necessarily a part of my sport, but it was just one of those great memories being part of a, something bigger, you know, and the parade of nations is a special thing and, and being a flag bearer, you know, was showing the entire world, like, this is Guam. You know, this is the person that's representing Guam, right, as a whole. So it was a great honor. And how did it feel to win that uh, match at 2012? It felt good. I don't want to I don't want to sound cocky, but I knew I was going to win it. There's no way I was going to lose that one, you know. Um, before the match, it was it was kind of funny because, you know, I, I know most of the guys in the circuit and this guy, he I, I, I never really saw him. So during <clears throat> during the trainings, um, myself and, and uh, my sensei, Atif and my brother and I, we would we would just warm up on our own and do our own thing. Oceania tried to stick together, but. You know, we uh, we ended up breaking off, and and I guess this guy from Guinea was training with the Oceania guys, and he was asking all of them about me and about you know if I'm strong or not, and all the other guys are kind of like, kind of giving him that, oh man, you can do it, you can do it, bro, you can win, and it was really funny because all of them would come out to go up to me afterwards and be like, hey man, I think he's pretty nervous, and I'm like, yeah, well, it's judo, bro, we're both gonna go on that mat, and. Well, in my head, I'm going to come out the winner, right? That's how I think every time I go into a match. So if you don't think that way, then you're going to lose anyway. What do you think about the fact that uh, he was afraid to return home to Guinea after that because he's afraid they were going to kill him yeah. for losing to you? Yeah. He, he, uh, he requested for political asylum because the country did threaten to kill him, man. Great. The listeners might not be familiar with the story. Could you could you tell them the story? Yeah. So so Equatorial Guinea is is a country of millions of people, right? And so they sent him as a representative of all of them, and he caught got me in the draw for the first match. So people in Guinea wouldn't know that I definitely outranked, right? But to them, it's it's the Olympic Games, and they're sending this guy to fight. And he fights Guam. So they think, oh, we pulled Guam. That's going to be an easy match. You should win this one. Well, obviously, it's not going to be an easy match, right? So, so after defeating him, the country couldn't believe that he lost to a country of only 160,000 people. So a lot of them threatened to kill him. And, on, you know, and a lot of people were telling him he shouldn't come home because he's going to lose his life, in a sense. And so he... he uh, requested for political asylum in, in London. But I'm not too sure if that's the truth or not. I mean, a lot of people from, a lot of people from a lot of different countries, especially when you have uh, the Olympic Games in London, they're gonna they're gonna try to seek the political asylum, you know, so it just because they just don't want to go back to the the countries they're from. They're like you just like the England ladies. Huh? You think he just liked the English ladies? Possibly, man. I, I'm not too sure. I, I don't want to speak on his behalf, but you know, it's got to be a tough thing, you know, to go home and and uh, have your country feel toward you know feel that way towards you after after going to the Olympic Games and thinking you're doing something great for them, you know. So then, what what, what is next for you, and what do you, is your future for Guam Judo? 
<clears throat> what's what's next for me? Well, is, future, really, but your dream. Yeah, what's your dream for Guam Judo? My, my dream for Guam Judo is to create a system where our kids don't have to leave the island to get better anymore. You know, at the moment we do have to leave the island to to advance. I can only take a player so far, and then you need the environment it takes to grow, and that environment is something that I have not been able to create yet. You know, which is which is programs with very high skilled strong judo players if we have multiple programs with that many players then we can build we can build a strong base here problem is the population of judo players and and well instructors like myself are are scarce so at the moment i'm working towards the goal of, of bringing in more players from from off island so like moki is going to be one of the first ones um she's been such a great help already and i'm hoping that with a successful i guess trial for her it'll you know it'll make more players from japan want you know japan and korea want to come to guam and maybe learn some english maybe work you know and then study and then teach judo out here so it's just uh something i'm looking towards something i'm trying to work with some of the universities with now that you know the countries are all opening up after covid um you know some of my really good friends on the japan national team they come through all the time and they bring their judo geese they leave their they leave the world championship geese here in my house. So they just don't have to repack it again, you know? So that's going to be a big help over time. Um, yeah. My goal right now is just to create an environment for our players to, to flourish so that they don't have to leave the Island. You know, I know what it's like to have to leave and never come back and, and feel alone out there. Whereas if we just built that system here and created that system here, then, None of those kids would have to be homesick, leave their parents for a long period of time, you know? So really right now, I'm just trying to create the culture and, and through that culture, if we can create some good instructors, then maybe in the span of the next five to 10 years, we're going to have a great program that is going to be a powerhouse in the region. You know, our players individually, we're powerhouses in the Oceania region, for sure. We do well, but it's only because we train, train out of Japan, mm -hmm. you know? So... I want to be able to have a community that if we invite a big Japanese team or a big Korean team, we'll have the community to be able to stimulate their training as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's my dream and those are my goals. And, and we got a lot of great people that are, that are helping me push the, I guess, the concept of judo nowadays. Like, you know, Frank and Sarah have been helping out a lot too because you know, Franklin is in judo, so it's really great that they're showing that, you know, Franklin is having fun with judo because a lot of times when people in the past, when people did judo, they, they just thought it was too hard and, and, and too tough. But the program I have going now for the kids, I try to make it as fun as possible, you know, and as, as appealing to kids as possible. So it's, it's about having fun, about having, you know, discipline and about creating family. I always tell everyone that judo is family. You know, we treat each other like family, period. So, so I'm hoping to instill some good morals into these kids and, you know, trying to make some some gentlemen and some ladies and and, and just Kano Sente's dream for the world is, is Jita Kyoye, right? Which is mutual welfare and benefit for the world. You know, to, to create judo players that are outstanding citizens, you know, to be thought of as outstanding citizens. So it's, it's something that I kind of want to push into Guam Judo as much as possible, you know, bringing that from Japan. So... Yeah, right now, my dream is just to create a competitive system on the island at the moment. 
Well, Rick, we uh, we believe in you. We believe you're going to get that done, and we're rooting for you, of course. Um, and our last question we ask all our guests is, well, what advice do you have for people who want to be in black belt in life? You know, the advice I'm going to give to everybody looking for a black belt is, is don't put too much clout on the belt, all right? That belt is just there to hold your gi together, all right? The belt is not as, is, it does not signify that you are a skilled player. It does not signify that you are the best player. That belt holds your gi together. What makes a player a player is, is right here, all right? It's your heart. It's your ability. It's your personal skill. It has absolutely nothing to do with your belt. So I know a lot of people put a lot of clout on the belt. And of course, it's, like, it's a pop culture thing, right? To be a black belt is an achievement. Of course it is. It is an achievement. But it should never be something that's boasted about, you know? The belt is just something to hold you be together. Judo, judo players themselves, at least from our teaching, is, is not so much about your belt, but how you affect the world around you. Right. As a black belt, it's your responsibility because of your knowledge of your art. It's your responsibility to give back, to take care of the people around you, because that does signify a higher skill set than the normal person, you know. And so, you know, hate to quote Spider-Man, right? But with great, great power comes great responsibility. It's the same concept with a black belt. If you want to be a good black belt, be a good person, you know, period. You have the responsibility to all normal people walking around to be that person. So yeah, my advice to anyone trying to get trying to get to a black belt, trying to get a black belt, trying to look towards a black belt is to work on yourself personally as a person and how you affect the world around you. It's the best way to become a black belt. Thank you, sir. <laughs>